We come to Job chapter 18 this evening, reading that entire chapter. Truly, the the word of the Lord is a light into our path, it creates faith in us, and it shows us the greatness of our God and Savior. So give your attention to the reading of it, God's holy and inspired word, Job 18. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be moved out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on it on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him, a rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his, at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He's thrust from light into darkness and driven out uh, out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. Such, uh, surely such, are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So Frost is famous for taking the road less traveled. But as you know, by far the more common choice for us humans is the way of water. That is the path of least resistance. The smooth downhill slope, this is our preference. We might know that it isn't always the healthiest, but still the elevator beats the stairs. Driving is better than a bicycle, and a movie will get a bigger audience than the book. For why struggle when there's a more enjoyable and less stressful path to life? It only seems wise. And sure, at times, wisdom does favor the paved road. But at others, not so much. This is particularly the case when it comes to problem solving. For as you know, it's all the rage nowadays to take some complex and intricate issue and to lob at it simplistic and pat answer. For every disaster now is blamed on climate change and every wrong is the system's fault. 
This is kind of like performing brain surgery with a chainsaw. The bluntness of the solution is completely out of balance with the sophistication of the problem. And yet, such Twitter answers are so easy. 280 characters can fix any problem nowadays. This is the path of least resistance. And when it comes to comforting and counseling each other in the body of Christ, this is also our tendency to take the easy road. One proof text yanked out of context, and we claim God said it, you did it, you do it all better. Well, this is what Bildad does again to Job. And by his path of least resistance, we come to appreciate the wisdom of the less traveled road. So Job has just taken a breather. After his speech in chapter 16 and 17, he's giving his voice a mini sabbatical. And into the silence steps Bildad for his second speech. Now, the last time we heard from Bildad was back in chapter 8. And in his opening talk, Bildad was plenty frank with Job, for he did charge him with arrogant and windy words. He defended God's justice. He accused Job's kids of sinning, and he chided Job for not seeking God. Bildad there also underscored the wisdom of the ancestors as reliable, and he promised Job sweet laughter if he just repent and turn to God. In his first word, Bildad did give Job hope. But how things have changed, as, as you'll know, Job has not taken the friend's advice. Indeed, Job just asserted that his friends are rather miserable comforters, He lamented long how God mauled him as an enemy. But Job also confessed his confidence in God to be his heavenly witness and advocate to vindicate his pure hands and innocent prayer. And then Job pleaded with God to vindicate him soon before his fast approaching death. For if Job's uprightness was not proven in life, then it would not satisfy his hope to be acquitted from the shame that's been piled upon him. In short, Bildad just heard Job say, I am upright, God is mistreating me, but God needs to vindicate my innocence. And these remarks do not sit well with Bildad. In fact, they seem to make him upset. Bildad is losing his patience and getting angry. For now, he launches into a verbal onslaught. The time for being reasonable has passed, and it's time to tirade. Thus, right out of the gate, he tells Job to zip it. Shut up, Job. How long until you put an end to your words? Job needs to stop talking and just listen. As he says next, you consider and we will talk. He cuts Job's microphone off, and he turns up his own volume. Bildad no longer wants a discussion, a back and forth. Rather, Job needs to be silenced, and only Bildad and his two buddies will get to talk. Moreover, he charges Job with treating them as stupid. You think we are brute beasts? You treat us as idiots? 
Now, Job has not really done this. He did call them miserable comforters and fickle friends. But Job mainly argued that he was just as smart as his friends. He felt that they saw him as dumb, for they did call him a fool. And so Job mainly asserted that he was just on their same level. Bildad, though, takes this as an insult. As things are getting heated, we can see that communication is breaking down. Next, Bildad takes an aim at a very specific comment Job made. In verse 4, he tells Job that you tear it yourself in your anger. Now, this is an image of being mauled by a bear, and it's one that was first employed by Job in chapter 16, verse 9. There, in his long lament how God had been an enemy to him, Job stated how God mauled him in anger. Job said, God is mauling me, and Bildad retorts, no, you're mauling yourself. You're destroying yourself, Job, in your temper tantrum, you're self-destructing. Bildad blames Job for all his sufferings. It's your own fault. You can't blame God. And then he says that Job is acting as if the world should revolve around him. Should the earth be overturned for you? Should Should mounds be moved for you? This is a rebuke that Job is trying to flip the moral order of the world on its head just for him. That is, there's a natural law by which the whole earth stays in time. But Job is trying to say it doesn't work for him. He's the one exception, the single unique case. And for Bildad, this natural order is retribution. Like gravity, retribution is part of the fabric of the natural world. Sinners get punished and the righteous get blessed. Yet Job is affirming that this isn't true for him. As a spoiled brat, Job is acting as if the world centered on him, and so Bildad spits out, how dare you? The hubris to think you're the one exception to the retribution principle? You're suffering, so you sin, Job. There's no other explanation. And now, to prove his point, Bildad spins a long description of the wicked and their fate. This actually extends from verse 5 all the way through verse 20, where then Bildad concludes in verse 21, where he says, Such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. This is the place of the one who does not know God. This is Bildad's anatomy of the non-believing deprived person the wicked atheist. And he's quite detailed in this long description. He starts off with the imagery of light and darkness. He says the light of the wicked is put out, his flame does not shine, his lamp will go out, and darkness will be in his tent. This depicts ignorance and death. To have no light is to walk around dense and clueless. That is, the wicked is blind to the consequences of his actions, and when the last flicker of flame is quenched, death has won. All the lights go out. 
Next, with a series of lines about traps and snares, the wicked has authored his own fate. His schemes have thrown him down. He walked into the net. He, his feet, stepped on the snare, and a noose squeezes down on his heel. This underscores how the wicked is fully responsible for all his problems and pain. There's no accidents here, no undeserved troubles. Rather, the evil person does it all to himself. His evil plans and desires led him over a pit only to be caught in a trap. He reaps exactly what he sowed. Next, as an active force and agent, death pursues and hounds the wicked person. Note he mentions the firstborn of death in verse 13 and the king of terrors in verse 14. This personifies death as the lord of the underworld or maybe as a demon terrorizing the sinner. And the torments of death are disease, panic, and paranoia. It says terrors are all around him. His guilty conscience is scared that everything's out to get him. Then illness starves him, eats at his flesh, and chews on his limbs. He's torn from the safety of his tent and dragged before this cool phrase, the king of terrors, the lord of death sitting on his throne, Sheol. For the wicked, there is no escaping the tractor beam of death. It inevitably pulls him down into the land of no return. And then it curses him with the worst of all fates. His memories are erased from the earth, and he has no name in the streets. Now, in the ancient world, one of the ways that you could be blessed in death was to have an enduring fame. Your name would be passed on for generations. Stories would be told about you. All the history books would include you. But to be forgotten, to have your name blotted out, This was the shame of obscurity. Similarly, your name could be preserved in your children. Kids and grandkids could carry on your legacy and bring you honor in the grave. And not so for the wicked. As Bildad waxes on, he has no posterity or progeny. No son or successor survives for the sinner. Instead, He perishes childish. None of his relatives remain. This, excuse me, is the cursed death and condemned afterlife. Remember, it was commonplace of of the day back then that your living relatives brought you gifts to your grave to care for you in the land of the dead. But if you had no kids or cousins, then your grave was bare and you were confined to thirst and hunger in Sheol. So dreaded and horrendous was such a fate that all who saw it were horrified. From the east to the west, the cursed death of the wicked makes everyone shriek in fear. Gone and forgotten, anathematized in death, damned forever in Sheol, this is the fate of the wicked. This is the retribution principle for he deserves, that he deserves for not knowing God and for walking in sin. 
And such is the law of the world that never skips a beat, that suffers no exceptions or anomalies. And for Job to think that he can be the exception makes him the fool of all fools. Indeed, after listening to Bildad's narrative of the wicked and their retribution, it becomes clear that he isn't being general. This is not merely a nonspecific description of your average wicked person, but it's actually the anatomy of Job himself. Bildad is saying, this is you, Job. For Job has confessed of being terrified. He has no kids or offspring left to survive him. Disease and maggots are eating his flesh. He's hemmed in by darkness. Job is afraid of being forgotten and shamed by all. This description is a condemnation of Job. It imposes the retribution principle upon him as the full explanation for everything he is enduring. This is why Job should stop talking. He should no longer ponder the solution to his problem, for Bildad has the answer for him, simple and to the point. Job, you do not know God. You are depraved. And so the imperishable law of retribution is repaying you for your evil deeds. Death is eating your skin, and this does not happen to good Christians. Yet the question is, does Bildad have the right solution? The wicked suffering a cursed death? This is basically the same as the wages of sin or death. At the end of the day, isn't this how God punishes sinners who do not know him? Bildad's point of retribution seems solid, and his application of it to Job could fit, but are there any errors in his problem-solving? And yes, there are. For one, Bildad has rendered a final verdict here on Job's impiety. The jury's no longer out. No more research or investigation needs to be done. It's settled. Job is wicked. He's not righteous. He shall not pass go, but go directly to jail. And not only has Bildad closed the case on Job's uprightness, but he sealed the file on his faith. He says he doesn't even know God. He isn't a Christian, but he's an atheist. Of course, though, as God said in the opening chapters, this is a wrong judgment. Job does know and love God. He has walked in uprightness. Bildad renders a wrong verdict, but it's also a hasty one. Remember, Job is in agony and mourning. How did Bildad go so fast from being there to comfort him to then being jury, judge, and executioner? His ruling is too easy and too quick. Secondly, Bildad underlines retribution as the only way to read Job and the world order. The wicked reap what they sow. This explains everything as if it was a Newtonian law. 
But to filter everything through retribution? This is facile and very limited. It's reductionistic and lazy. To say that retribution is always the answer even limits God. As if God merely operates by the retribution principle and he doesn't have the liberty to pursue other purposes or goals. Suffering is not only for punishment and prosperity only for reward. This reduces the multitasking wisdom of God and it reverses the priority as if God is beholden to retribution. And yet, retribution was made for God, not God for retribution. Third, the one-size-fits-all reading of retribution excludes mercy and compassion. If Job's plight is all his fault, then there's no need for sympathy or gentleness. In fact, compassion becomes a compromise to retribution. If your suffering is the penalty that you are paying, then to relieve it undermines justice. As a godless sinner, pity would violate the moral world order. Thus, finally, Bildad's speech is itself punitive. His argument here is weaponized to terrify and silence. He did say in this first line that Job needed to put an end to his word. Thus, Bildad is no longer trying to understand. He's given up learning. Rather, his design is to kick Job while he's down. He's actually punishing Job with more shame and disgrace. You're depraved. This is what you deserve. So zip it and die, Job. You have no faith, no integrity. God's cursed you. End of story. Therefore, Bildad took the path of least resistance. Listening was too much work. Researching was too hard. And paying attention to the details was too labor-intensive. And so he grabbed for the easy, blunt instrument. If you just hit it hard enough, that square peg will eventually go in the round hole. Yet Bildad's lazy solution stands in stark contrast to how Christ deals with us. Bildad wouldn't put the effort in to truly understand Job and his agony. Jesus, however, what did he do to understand us? Well, he became human. Jesus did the arduous research of putting on human flesh. He performed the experience, the experiment of being hungry and thirsty just as we can. Jesus had indigestion and a sore throat. He put up with annoying people. The temptations of money, fame, and sex crossed his path. Sleepless nights, Nights, banged up knees and ashy skin, he felt in his flesh. Jesus did not merely study us in a lab, but he walked in our shoes that long, dusty mile from the cradle to the grave. He felt our aches and endured our temptations. 
Jesus didn't jump to any easy answers. He didn't throw pat solutions at our problems. But he painstakingly listened, read, analyzed, and experienced our entire plight and predicament. And what was the result of Jesus taking that uphill path never traveled before? Well, without any sin, he became our sympathetic high priest. Christ's research and his understanding of us opened his heart in compassion, grace, and gentleness. The mercy of God for our salvation and comfort gushes forth from Christ's understanding. By his in-depth research in life and upon the cross, Jesus supplied us with the perfectly intricate solution. Indeed, we are held captive to the wages of sin. Justice demanded our blood. This was an impossible problem, an unsolvable equation. And yet by becoming like us, though without sin, Jesus obtained the heavenly answer. By his death, the Father became both just and the justifier of the ungodly through faith. No, there is nothing simple about our salvation, for there's nothing more complex about our predicament as sinners under the wrath of God. But what was impossible for us became the possible by Christ for us. Moreover, Christ's ideal wisdom and understanding for our salvation continues for all of our life. As we confess through the word, Christ builds us up in holiness and comfort. As we feel the pains and aches of life under the sun, Christ's compassion comforts us and his wisdom can use the hardships and joys for a plethora of purposes and positives. Jesus' wisdom is not a one-trick pony, as Bildad displayed, but he's an acrobatic multitasker. Graciously, Christ can use our sufferings to strengthen our faith, to purge away sin, to exercise our godliness, to teach us about what he suffered. Additionally, our hardships are not just for ourselves. Jesus works our struggles at times just for the benefit of others. He can make us examples to the saints, testimony to outsiders, and encouragement to the downcast. Indeed, in his love, Jesus does not deal with us by strict retribution. Sure, he will discipline us for our bad behavior at times, but he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Particularly, though, Christ's understanding compassion towards us serves the goal that we would be the same towards others. Yes, Jesus is patient and listening with us so that we might have the same wisdom With each other. But like Bildad, we are prone to lazy solutions, harsh judgments, and the path of least resistance. 
a brother or a sister goes through some trial, and our first thought tends to be, well, they can't be a Christian. What did they do wrong? They must have deserved it. We are lazy listeners. We refuse to put the time in to understand. And we can simplify complex problems with cliches and stereotyped band-aids. And when our understanding falls short, so our compassion and grace falters. But by the mercy of Christ, he teaches us the patience of wisdom and the compassion of understanding. He imparts to us knowledge to appreciate complexity and the sincerity to console and to comfort. Therefore, may we give thanks to our sympathetic and gracious high priest, Jesus Christ. And then may we learn the tender wisdom of our Savior, so that towards one another, that we might be quick to listen, slow to speak, and abounding in gentleness, love, and mercy. And all for the glory of God until he brings us home.